Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. We're in a message series called His Name Will Be Called, and we're looking at some names that are given to the coming of Jesus, to the coming of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, how many of you, by raise of hands, know what you know what your name is, know your name and the meaning of your name. How many of you know both the, your name and meaning of your name? Yeah, a number of you. Anybody want to volunteer, just kind of like shout out what your name is and what it means? Anybody? Hand up the, all the way in the back. Daniel, God is my judge. Ooh, that's a tough one, isn't it? Yikes. Uh, anybody else? Alma means soul. Awesome. That's in Spanish. Somebody uh, from south, from Zimbabwe, actually, first service, her name was Sakai, meant laugh, which I thought was kind of cool. It was pretty awesome uh, name and meaning. Anybody else? Anybody, one or two more? Anybody else want to, what's your name and the meaning of your name? Nobody? Come on. Hannah. Hannah means grace. Awesome. And I think one more back here. Niasha means grace as well. So often we, we, uh, we have names that we hope to live up to that are an expression of our lives. Uh, once in a while, that's not the case. It's actually a little bit of a contrast. You might have heard about the little girl who lost her dog, and she posted a fairly lengthy sheet of paper all the way around town, hoping that her dog would be found. Uh, she described her dog. She said her dog had come from out of an abusive situation. It was a rescue dog. It had once broken its leg and therefore walked with a limp. Its coat was kind of shaggy and unkept. It was a really old dog, so it could hardly bark. Its teeth were worn out, and so it could only eat soft food. And it was hard of hearing, but if you shouted really loud to this dog, who, by the way, also had its tail cut off in a door, if you shouted really loud, it would answer to the name Lucky. Uh, obviously a little bit of a contrast. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah gives us names of the child who would be born on Christmas Day. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But we said last week, and we'll go over this in a bit, that Isaiah was written somewhere around this time frame. And we said that Isaiah was written this time frame where things were in chaos, things were messy, things were disrupted. We said that often God's work does not happen in a way that dazzles us or is magical or is obviously supernatural, but instead God's work often happens in the painfully natural, in the unexciting, in the normal, in the routine. And so if we only look for the work of God and the dazzling and the obviously supernatural and the exciting, we're often going to miss the activity of God because his work often happens in sort of the painful, ordinary, everyday aspects of life. We said that the grand story, and we've looked at this chart 
at our series, Jesus Continued, the, the Bible tells us the story of how we got here, that we're created to be in the presence of God. When God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the word Eden meaning pleasure, it meant that God placed them there for them to enjoy life in relationship with him. There was beauty, beauty, there was harmony. It was a place of pleasure, of delight. That was the place of Eden. And then we said the next part of the story also in Genesis is that Adam and Eve choose their own path of autonomy. They choose to be their own self-providers. And as a result of that, there's something happened that's sometimes called the fall. And it results in the separated presence. That rather than living in harmony with God and one another, now there's disharmony, not just between humans and God, but between humans and even their environmental surroundings, between humans and themselves. And so Adam and Eve get into all kinds of marriage fights. And that's a result of separated presence. Our, our world has fallen from the glorious place in which God originally created it. Well, eventually Jesus comes, the gospel of Matthew opens with that. But in this whole frame of time, God is at work in the painfully natural. He calls the nation of Israel and he says, look guys, through you, I'm going to bring about a plan of redemption and restoration. Rather than leaving things separated from my presence, rather than leaving things simply broken, my goal is to bring about the ultimate fulfillment of a recreation for the story to begin again. And so the vision that the Bible presents is this massive vision of God bringing the restoration with which he once created the world. And to do that, plopped in the middle is the birth of Jesus. Well, God, as I said, calls a nation of Israel, and there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then there's King Saul, and David, and Solomon, and on and on it goes. And God says to the nation of Israel, he says, look, you're to be my representatives in the world. I want you to be a light to the nations. And so he gave them all kinds of laws. He says, when you, when you deal with people economically, you're to use, he says, just weights and measures. In other words, if people pay for a product, they're supposed to get what they pay for. Don't just, because they used to weigh things with weights and measures, don't distort that in your favor. He says, don't take economic advantage of those who are vulnerable to exploitation, particularly those who are fatherless, those who are orphans, those who are widows, those who are poor. God recognized if you're in a position of prosperity, if you're in a position of power that you have a voice, those who don't have a voice are vulnerable to exploitation. And so he said to the Israelite culture, don't take advantage of those who are poor. Don't take advantage of those who don't have a political voice. He also said to the nation of Israel, hey, don't rely simply on military strength and brute force to a vanquish your enemies. Trust in me. Have your trust placed in me. Don't simply rely on your military power and have faith and strength in that. But from day one, Israel didn't really follow through on that. They disobeyed God. They were not his light to the surrounding nations. They became abusive in their relationships with those who are vulnerable. They took advantage of the fatherless, the orphans, the widows, and the poor. 
the powerful exploited those who weren't as powerful. And as a result of that, God allowed nations to come in and conquer the people of Israel. We said last week, there's my sort of my nice drawing. This is the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, up here is the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River. Down here is the Dead Sea. And so we said, basically, the nation split in two following Solomon. Now, up here is the northern kingdom, which was often called just Israel, short for Israel. It can be a little bit confusing because Israel was just refers to the whole thing in one sense. But throughout the Old Testament, much of the time, Israel is simply referred to as a northern kingdom. So Isaiah is writing and the northern kingdom of Israel has already been destroyed. Isaiah is writing right here before the first coming of Jesus. He's writing it here before the first coming. He's technically, it's actually about 740 BC because Isaiah mentions that it was a year that one of the kings, King Uzziah died, but he's also writing after that. The nation, the, the Northern kingdom of Israel fell about 721 BC. And so that's already happened. But Isaiah is basically writing to the Southern kingdom, sometimes just abbreviated Judah. And he's telling them, Hey, look, Your fate is the same as the northern kingdom because you're not following after God either. And you're going to be conquered as well. You're going to be exiled. You're going to be taken out of the land. And God is going to allow the enemies to conquer you to kind of wake you up to your disobedience as well. But Isaiah doesn't just leave that there. He says, hey, there's also hope that there's going to be tremendous, disastrous and destructive things happening. But Isaiah also spoke with hope that even though things looked disastrous, that God was still at work. He was still going to carry out his plan. And eventually, Isaiah mentions this verse. He says, there's going to come a day when Jesus comes. And he talks about throughout his book, Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to be raised from the dead. And then it's going to carry on. Just a couple to carry on with our chart. Jesus comes and it symbolizes the redeemed and restored presence of God. Through Jesus coming, the presence that God had with us would be set on the path of restoration. That we could once again become God's sons and his daughters. The Holy Spirit would come at Pentecost after Jesus ascended into heaven. And so presently we live somewhere during this period of time where the Holy Spirit indwells us. And we look forward to a day when Jesus comes again for the second advent to make things right. To set things the way that they should be. One of the names that Isaiah gives to this coming person who's born in Bethlehem in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six is mighty God. We're in a series where we're looking at four different names that Isaiah gives to us. Last week, we looked at wonderful counselor or wonder counselor. Here's the verse once again, for to us, a child is born to us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He says, mighty God. Remember last week we said it's not really even wonderful counselor. It's probably more like wonder counselor. A God who does things that are are filled with wonder. Things that are beyond our comprehension. Things that are beyond our ability to put together. Then he says, he's also mighty God. And the, the sort of the sense there is he's sort of champion God. You might even say he's the hero God. He's the conquering God. 
He's the warrior God. He's the champion God. He's the hero God. He's the mighty God. And so we're going to look at three things this morning. Number one, why we need a mighty God. Secondly, what that mighty God does. And then lastly, who that mighty God really is. First, why do we need a mighty God? Just notice again in that verse, it says, for to us, a child is born and to us, a son is given. Now, maybe you read that verse and it's kind of like, that's weird. And here's what's kind of weird about it. You would expect, remember, Isaiah is writing this 700 years before the birth of Jesus. You would naturally expect that verse to say, for to us, a child will be born. To us, a son will be given. Isaiah intentionally uses the present tense because what God says and what he's going to do can be counted on so much that Isaiah actually uses the present, even though it's future. He says, you're going to be going through a challenging time where you're taken over by the Babylonians. Many of you are going to be exiled. You're going to, the land is going to be dark. You're going to think that the grand plan of God has gotten way derailed. But you can live with the absolute confidence and assurance that God's plan is on track. And instead of saying a child will be born, a son will be born, given, he says it in the present. Friends, listen to this. God's faithfulness is so absolutely certain that what he says is going to come to pass so absolutely will that it can be spoken of even in the present. If I've got plans or you got plans, like we use the future tense because, I mean, you never quite know. Things happen. You know, 48 hours ago, many people had homes that are now destroyed by tornadoes. It grieves and it breaks my heart. But what God says, even though it's in the future, he uses the present tense. Secondly, he also noticed, he says, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. First, in the, in the Hebrew language there, it actually starts with the child and son. In other words, child born to us. Son given to us. The person that God is sending is central. He says, child born to us, son given to us. Notice also as well, it says the child is born and the son is given. During our series on Jesus Continue, we mentioned multiple times that the God that we worship exists in a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we said the existence of the son did not begin when Jesus came to earth. The existence of the son, has, he's existed from eternity past. He's divine. He's the very God of very God. And so Jesus did not come into existence as son when he was born. He came to it into existence as a child. And so it doesn't say a son is born. It says, no, a child is born because Jesus wasn't previously a child. But then it says a son is given. The son wasn't born because the son already existed. The son is part of the Holy Trinity. And so Isaiah makes clear that this God is powerful. He's eternally existent from beginning to end. C.S. Lewis says this, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing nor a static thing. 
Not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. Get that vision? Lewis says, man, the God that we worship exists in, in a holy trinity. He's packed with activity. Our world is packed with the activity of the Holy Trinity. This three-personal life is a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up. Why do we need a mighty God who exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because we're not self-sustaining creatures. We don't find life within ourselves. In fact, the only way that we can find life, as I said a few minutes ago at the end of worship, the only way that we can find out who we are is part of the grand story of us being cured by God's holy initiative. That we, you, me, all of us, we are his creation. And I, once in a while when I do want to do totally brainless activity, uh, on my drive back and forth from my house to church. Sometimes I listen to Philadelphia Sports Talk Radio, which is just an absolute waste of time, which again, it's, it's why I do it only when I want to be brainless. And it was probably about a week and a half ago, the Eagles made some kind of decision. I forget what it was. And, you know, sometimes I, I listen and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't stand it any longer. It's just repetitive and stuff. And it, so they were kind of critiquing, critiquing a move that the coach made and it was, I forgave and forget what the move was. But, but here's the deal. It's kind of like the generate activity. So they call us with something that you just don't get because they were critiquing the, like, we just don't get this decision. Like, why did he decide to do this? So they're like, hey, call us to tell us like what you just don't get. And they kind of prefaced it with, hey, like, you know, kind of like keep it sort of light. You know, we're not going too deep here. Well, this one guy calls and he actually says, he says, um, one thing I don't get is the ultimate meaning of life. And they were like, hey, remember we said to keep it light? <laughs> keep it light. This is sports talk radio. <laughs> but I found it fascinating. Isn't it interesting that somebody calls, a, calls sports talk radio? It says, there's one thing I don't get. It's what's the ultimate meaning of life? You know, a week and a half ago, Ethan Crumbly took his nine millimeter six hour handgun and killed several students in a Michigan high school and injured others. And before he did that, he had a note on his desk that his teacher took a picture of. And on that note, it said, help me. My life is useless. Blood everywhere. The world is dead. That's a cry of someone saying, there's no meaning. There's no story. My life is useless. Listen, friends, this world, you personally need a mighty God because you're not a self-sustaining creature. You don't find life in yourself. You feel the weight of separated presence. You long for to live in a bigger story. And the hero God, the champion God, the mighty God, 
is the only place where any of our stories begin to make sense. Just a week or so ago, not only do we need a mighty God because we're not self-sustaining creatures, but we also need a mighty God because of just the complexity of evil in our world. A week ago, three were convicted of the racially motivated murder of Ahmad Arbery. We saw that play out on the news. We probably saw the video played many times. And so we know the horrific evil of racism is alive in our world. As we saw the loss of life of Ahmad Arbery. Same time in the last few days, we saw Jesse Smollett convicted on five counts of disorderly conduct because he faked an attack on himself that was racially and homophobically motivated. When I look at the complexity of that, when I look at the reality that racism does exist, and it's a terrible scourge in our world, And then I look at the exploitation of that very issue and a kind of a staged attack. What I come away with is, man, we need a mighty God to sort that stuff out. Whether it's racism, whether it's poverty, man, do you realize that almost every issue in our world, there's some real injustices and then there's exploitation of that very same issue. We need a mighty God to sort that out. Now I've mentioned periodically that, you know, there's a lot happening in our world followers of Jesus related to deconstruction. And some who say like, man, I once upon a time believe in God. And now I see pastors and religious leaders, some very, very prominent who like fallen or they were abused people that they sexually took advantage of people and, Clearly their life was lived hypocritically and they weren't who they were, were. they were pharisaical, they were self-righteous and, and yet the story behind the scenes was so much different. And as a result of that, there's a number of followers of Jesus who are like, you know what? Like, I just don't believe in this God anymore. You know, several of those people who have fallen have deeply and significantly influenced me. I've learned some things from them. I've gleaned wisdom. I've gleaned understanding. And yet I need to stand back and I say, man, like, man, God needs to sort that one out too. And here's the deal, friends. Southridge Community Church is not exempt from that. I'm not exempt. Like, trust me, I'm a mixed bag. And quite honestly, you are too. And the only person who can figure that one out is God. God alone is judge. We need a mighty God. We need a champion God. We need a hero God because there's a lot that's a mess, friends. There's a lot that's a mess. Whether you go from church, sexuality, racism, religion, whatever it is, there's a lot of mess. That's why Isaiah says, man, we need a mighty God. Won't you agree? Why we need a mighty God. Secondly, what the mighty God does. What the mighty God does. This is pretty interesting. 
In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, I often just skip to verse 6 or so because that's where he says, wonderful counselor, mighty God, stuff I can get my head wrapped around a little bit. Uh, Verse 1 says this, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Listen to this. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those are kind of like foreign words to us. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the, Jordan, beyond the Jordan. What does this mighty God do? He mentioned Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, in your biblical history, uh, the tribes of Israel that settled this area, there were 12 tribes, and they got their names from the sons of Jacob. And two of those sons were named Zebulun and Naphtali. And so some of these were in here. Um, There's a picture on the screens. Um, Remember I said there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. This is prior to that. You can, if you can't see it from at the back, the uh, top left, there's a green blotch there. It's kind of like right here. It's to the uh, west of the Sea of Galilee. That is actually the land that the tribe of Naphtali inherited. Naphtali was one of the sons of Jacob. And so that tribe uh, kind of lived up in this northern part to the west of the Sea of Galilee. Right kind of below that is sort of this purplish color. That's the area that Zebulun had. Now, Now, here's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying, number one, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. When Isaiah wrote this, they were already in disarray. They were already captured by the Assyrian army. They were already turned upside down. They were already hopeless. So much so, listen, so much so, even by the time of Jesus' birth, Jesus was criticized because he was born in Nazareth. You know where Nazareth was? It was actually in the land of Naphtali. That's where the town of Nazareth was. And so when Jesus was born, people said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of this place called Naphtali? That was the area. So so Isaiah was saying, the area of Naphtali is, is humbled. It's taken over. It's destroyed. It's a wreck. And it lasted so long that even when Jesus was born and was from the town of Nazareth, which was in that land of Naphtali, people said, What's Nazareth? Can anything good come out of that? Everybody knows Nazareth is a loser. Nazareth is lost. Nazareth is not worth anything. But Isaiah also says, but in the future, he will be the honor of Galilee of the nations. In the future, Jesus actually would be born in that region. Jesus actually would come from Nazareth. Jesus actually would come from the region of Naphtali. So the very place that Isaiah said was humbled and demeaned and was nothing and still was by the time of Jesus, because it was from Nazareth, Isaiah says that very place is going to be the place of hope. And so Jesus would grow up. He would do miracles in that very place. It would become the hub of Jesus' miraculous activity. It would become the hub of where Jesus was doing ministry. It would become the hub of a place that would be honored because that's where Jesus was from. In fact, you know what other town was next to Nazareth? The town of Cana, 
which is where what happened? Jesus did his first miracle. So isn't it amazing that even in Isaiah's day, Isaiah is giving this prophecy, hey, Naphtali and Zebulun are going to be nothing. But there's going to come a day when they're actually going to be honored. And sure enough, that began to be fulfilled as Jesus himself came from that very area. The town of Naphtali has the idea of a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. It has this picture of, of life springing from it. And so it's from that very region that God begins his work of restored and redeemed presence from the area of Naphtali that's once demeaned now becomes this place from which hope springs because that's the birth, that's the home environment, that's the hometown of Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't that amazing? Which simply means this, friends, which simply means this. What does a mighty God do? The mighty God starts to bring life out of that which looks like it's destroyed. The mighty God brings hope out of that which is humbled. The mighty God brings victory out of that which seems defeated. The mighty God begins to bring restoration out of that which seems to be defeated. That's why Isaiah says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. That's why we do what we do here at Southridge. Like we would not do what we do if we didn't believe that God was at work in the world, bringing life out of death. We would not do what we do if we didn't believe that there was a God in the world bringing life and recreation out of that which is destroyed and that which is demeaned. You're probably aware of the 17 or so missionaries that were taken hostage in Haiti. I think up to five of them have now been released. My prayer is that all of them will be. But they're from a ministry called Christian Aid Ministries. And on their website, here's what Christian Aid Ministries said. Said this, occasionally we are asked why our workers were in Haiti. Why travel to dangerous places? Why not let these countries take care of their own issues? These are good questions which deserve an answer. They say, we live in a very broken world, a world of broken relationships, broken trust, and broken political systems. It's a world of loneliness, fear, and violence. And Jesus came not just so people could go to heaven when they die, but also to show the kind of world God intends right here on earth. God desires a world where the hungry are fed, abandoned orphans are cared for, and where lonely refugees are provided for. Jesus came to redeem this broken world, and he has called his church to work with him. We go to places like Haiti because we have found Jesus and his teachings to be the answer for our own lives. And we want others to enjoy the peace, joy, and redemption we have experienced in the kingdom of God. We travel to Haiti to help, but we can always return to our comfortable lifestyles here in the United States. But many in Haiti do not have this luxury. In their current lawless situation where anarchy reigns, Haitians live under constant fear. They have no way to escape. For many, every trip to the market is overshadowed by the continual threat of violence. 
As we continue to pray earnestly for our American staff, we also encourage fervent prayer for the Haitian people. What do they say? They say, we believe Jesus came. We believe the mighty God came to this earth, not just so people could go to heaven when they die, but also to show the kind of world God intends right here on earth. That's why they're doing what they do. They're doing what they did precisely because they believe the mighty God came here in the person of Jesus for the great rest, work of restoration to begin. And Jesus handed that work off for us to continue to love, serve, and obey him by love, by loving, serving, and obey, and, and offering ourselves to others. What does the mighty God do? The mighty God brings hope out of despair. The mighty God brings restoration to that which is broken. The mighty God takes that which seems to be demeaned and utter wasteful and begins to bring forth honor and a place of value. And so that's because that's what the mighty God is doing. That's why we at Southridge, that's why you in your personal life love others, serve others, speak words of kindness and compassion and grace, contribute financially to this ministry, other ministries, serve your neighbors, love your colleagues, love those and care for those who, you, who you are brought in contact with who may not have the same voice that you have. That's why we function with kindness, because we believe that God is bringing hope out of despair. That's what a hero God does. Lastly, and briefly, who the mighty God is. Well, eventually, Jesus would be born. He would be born in Bethlehem's manger. He would live a sinless life. He would grow up. He would stand before Pilate. He would be convicted and condemned himself. And listen to this. Rather than using his power to be abusive, rather than using his power to exploit those who are powerless, the son of God, the holy child born in Bethlehem's manger, rather than abusing others with his power, took on himself the abuse of our sin took on himself the abuse of our world took on himself the curse of evil. The only one who had the right to curse you took your curse on himself. The only one who had the right to judge you took your judgment on himself. The one who could have abused his power instead took your abuse on him. So that hope, life, recreation, restoration, redemption could flow. And ask Larry to come up and we're going to close out our service by simply singing joy to the world. 
And one of my favorite points, one of my favorite parts of Joy to the World, we often mention this at Christmas services, is this part in, toward the end where it talks about the goodness and glory and reign of God extending to however far the curse is found. Listen, friends, how far is the curse of sin found in our world? It's found in every detail, isn't it? It's found in racial relationships. It's found in marriage relationships. It's found in exploitation of the environment. It's found in economic exploitation. It's found in the abuse of power. It's found in the misuse of sex. It's found in consumerism. It's found in greed. The curse of sin extends to every atom of this universe. But here's the good news. Because we have a hero God, because there's a champion God, the power of grace will redeem and restore, listen to this, every last atom of this universe. And we so desperately need it. Song says, no more let thorns and thistles grow. Gone will be the thorn and thistles of evil. And in their place will be recreation, will be God making everything new. Joy to the world, the hero God, the champion God has come. Let's sing the song as a prayer and as an affirmation and a looking forward to the coming of this king. Far as the curse is found, far as, far as. 
God thank you that the champion God the hero God came and that through Jesus your blessings flow to this world far as the curse is found God we confess that the curse is far and wide the curse touches our lives. But through you, through the child who was born, through the son who was given, the son who took on the curse of sin, your blessings flow to us. May we participate with you in the work of the mighty God. May we love and serve others because we know that your purposes will be fulfilled. And so in the name of the one who descended from heaven was born in Bethlehem's manger who lived a sinless life who was convicted and condemned who was crucified buried in a tomb raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God and will one day return to make everything new. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our mighty hero and champion. God, we pray this and everyone who agreed said, amen, amen. Hey, our team will be down here to the right. We'd love to pray with you. God bless. Have a wonderful day.